We're jumping in this week to the book of Ruth. I mentioned to you guys before, um, as, as Orlando mentioned, you know, strong, faithful, courageous women have played an integral, integral part of God's work since the very beginning and, and are an integral part of the storyline of the Bible. We read about women like Sarah and Miriam and Rachel and Deborah and Hannah and Esther and Elizabeth and Mary and Lydia and the other Mary and Eunice and the other Mary, all sorts of Marys. But, but we're looking at Ruth for the next four weeks and we're going to follow her story. The book, of course, named after her. You can open up to Ruth chapter one, page 223 on those blue hardback Bibles. We're going to do a four week study in the book of Ruth. I'm actually a little bit, uh, I, I wish Ruth was longer because it's such an awesome story, but we're going to spend four weeks, four weeks in the book of Ruth. We'll have a special message uh, at our church anniversary, the first Sunday in June. And then we're going to spend the summer, about 13 weeks, looking at, at some of the Proverbs of Jesus. And so excited about that summer series as well. We're told in the, in the opening line of the book of Ruth that it takes place during the period of the Judges, which is why this book comes after Judges in your Bible. Some of you remember we studied Judges last year. And, and Judges takes place after the 12 tribes of Israel have conquered the promised land before they're unified around uh, a central king. And, and, and as I said at the time, the period of the Judges is kind of like the Wild West, right? There's no central government. There's no law and order. We only have these tainted regional fighters that, that bring some degree of deliverance to the people. Uh, the end of the book of Judges repeats this refrain, there's no king in the land and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we see that in the book of Ruth as she fights for survival, fights to, to make a way for herself. Now, unlike most of the historical books of the Old Testament, um, Ruth is not going to give us like big picture of the nation of Israel about kings and wars and things like that. It's an intimate look. We're going to zoom in on this woman, Ruth, and her fight for survival. And as we'll sh- soon see this morning, we'll find out she's not an Israelite. She's not a part of the covenant people of God. She is from Moab, and she only converts to become part of God's covenant. And, and this really is a great story of redemption. In fact, to give away the book's ending, if you haven't read it, um, Ruth ends up becoming the great-grandmother of the great King David, this Gentile. She's the direct line of the royal an- ancestry, ultimately, of the Messiah. In fact, she's mentioned in Matthew's Gospels, in the genealogy of Jesus. See, God had promised since the very beginning that through His covenant people, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The Gentiles too would receive of God's covenant love and blessing through the Messiah. And so we see in the, in the story of Ruth that Jesus great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandmother Ruth is a forerunner of this salvation that now has gone out to the ends of the earth, every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so as we read in the weeks to come, we're going to see Ruth as a central character. She's exemplary. But we're going to meet two other central people, Naomi and Boaz. Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law, and together they are going to work together to overcome tragedy, to overcome poverty. And we're going to meet a man named Boaz. But Boaz is going to step up as kind of the hero from a human perspective, a hero of the story. He's going to marry Ruth. He's going to redeem Naomi's property and rescue the family line as the kinsman redeemer. You see, that's the, the title of our, of our series. I'm not saying Kingsman Redeemer. Okay, that's a trilogy of spy movies. I'm saying Kinsman Redeemer. Like as in kinfolk, you know, my kin, right? It's an old-fashioned word, okay? But Kinsman means your, your family relatives, okay? It's, it's translating a, a Hebrew word, goel. 
Now, modern versions try to figure out, they use a variety of ways to try to translate this. Some say redeemer or close relative. Some say family redeemer, guardian redeemer, kinsman redeemer is kind of the old school way of, of saying it. I think it captures something. And, and here, here's what's going on behind this idea of a kinsman redeemer. It's rooted in the Old Testament laws of mercy and redemption. If, if you want to make a note and go read later, Leviticus 25, 23 to 25, says that if a man becomes impoverished and is forced to have to sell his land, sell his property, because he's, he's in such dire straits, then his nearest relative is expected to step up as the kinsman redeemer, buy back the property on behalf of his relative. We also read in Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, that if a man gets married and dies before he's able to produce a, a male heir, before he's able to have children, that his brother or his closest relative is expected to marry his widow, then their firstborn son of the new marriage will actually be a descendant of the deceased relative, carry his name and redeem his family line. And so this is what we see Boaz doing, buying back Naomi's property, marrying Ruth, continuing the family line, serving as the kinsman redeemer, rescuing them from poverty. And the book of Ruth, you're going to see, is this great, beautiful story of redemption coming out of, of great tragedy 23 times different forms of the word redeem are going to come up in the book because out of famine out of death out of poverty out of the struggle of these homeless widows of this foreign immigrant who ends up begging for mercy god is going to bring redemption god is going to in fact not just redeem them but prepare the royal line of the messiah And so as we read through the book of Ruth, we're going to see the dead come to life. We're going to see the empty become full, the bitter become pleasant, the hopeless find mercy. And man, I hope and pray that you're going to be inspired. You're going to see Ruth and Boaz, both great examples of kindness and integrity and faithfulness and courage. But ultimately, the purpose of the book of Ruth is not to be inspired by admirable characters. It's not to learn moral lessons. See, ultimately, the book of Ruth is not about Ruth or Boaz. And and yes, Boaz is the kinsman redeemer from a human perspective. But as we'll read this book through the lens of the New Testament, we see this story like all Old Testament stories, all Old Testament heroes and laws and prophecies ultimately are looking ahead, foreshadowing, finding fulfillment in Christ the Messiah. And we're going to see that Jesus is the true kinsman redeemer. The one who redeems the lost, who are lost in sin and tragedy and poverty. See, reading Ruth, we're going to anticipate Jesus. We're going to see the gospel in the book of Ruth. So we begin this morning in chapter 1. The story opens with great tragedy, but as we'll see, our big picture idea for this morning is, is that God's hand is in the tragedy. God's hand is, is in tragedy. So I'm going to pray and we'll read chapter 1 and then we're going to unpack this morning looking at four different scenes, four different scenes from chapter 1. You guys want to ask God for help? Let's pray. Father, we do ask you for help. That you would quiet our hearts, that you'd give us grace this morning to, to see you, to hear you. That your spirit would stir in our hearts, that you'd give us clarity to push through the the, the cultural uh, disconnection and the the history and and to hear from you in the midst of whatever we're facing. Whatever sorrow or tragedy or struggle that we are facing, that you would give us hope. Come Holy Spirit and bless the reading of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malone and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Malone and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and with the dead. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up their voices, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Amen. Amen. All right. We got a lot of ground to cover. That was a lot. So bear with me. Buckle up. We open with this guy, Elimelech. His name means my God is king. Now, he's from the town of Bethlehem. Hint, hint. The narrator is telling us something. Okay? The narrator is telling us this because Bethlehem means house of bread. It's the place where King David would one day be born, where the Messiah would one day be born. But in tragic irony, the house of bread and the surrounding land of Judah are experiencing famine. And so Elimelech and Naomi, they, they immigrate to Moab. You can see here on the map that this was not a short journey. They would have had to go outside of the promised land, travel around the Dead Sea, travel south down to Moab. We don't know why. 
Maybe Moab was experiencing prosperity. Maybe Elimelech had some business contacts down there. We don't know why. But it says that they were sojourning there, right? Indicates that they planned to live temporarily there as refugees to look for food and work. Now, I asked myself, was that wrong? Was it wrong for them to leave the promised land in search of food? Does it somehow show a lack of faith on the part of Elimelech? The the text doesn't say. It just reports what happened. It seems to be a practical decision. But then tragedy strikes, right? Away from home, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi alone, her two sons in a foreign land. And so here she is, away from home, a migrant, no husband. But but at some point, Naomi seems to make a decision to settle more permanently, and she finds sons for her husband, Moabite women. Now again, we can ask, was this wrong? Okay, God, God's covenant people were supposed to only marry within the faith. But the text just reports what happened. It doesn't condemn them finding Moabite wives. Again, tragedy. After ten years, Naomi's two sons die. You see this picture that's being built? Tragedy upon tragedy. Famine in the homeland. Sojourning to a foreign land. Losing her husband. Losing her two sons. There's another tragedy, which is is that these couples apparently have been married for ten years, but they are both infertile. She has no grandchildren. It was not a happy Mother's Day for Naomi. Imagine the grief. Imagine this this loss and hopelessness. And again, I, I find myself asking, why does this happen? Whose fault is it? Who's to blame? Was it Elimelech's fault for leaving the promised land? Did, was it, is, is, is it the, the son's fault for marrying pagan wives? Again, so far the story is just reporting what happened. It's not placing blame. The narrator is not answering the question of whose fault it is because that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that tragedy happens and we're going to see what God does in the tragedy. Life is full of tragedy, and sometimes it's because of our own foolish, sinful decisions. Sometimes we face tragedy because of the foolish, sinful decisions of someone else hurting you. But sometimes tragedy just happens. And there's no one to blame. There's no finger to point. And you face death, or sickness, or sin, or cancer. Oppression, abuse, disappointment, hurt, hurt even in the church, tragedy. Life is hard and you may feel desperate. You may feel hopeless at times. And we've each experienced some form of this broken world. You may or may not define it as tragedy. You may look at someone else and think, well, well, they're more or less tragic than I am. But listen, if it hurts, it's tragic. It's, it's worth, worthy of grief, worthy of sorrow. God hurts and it's okay to hurt. It's, it's okay to say, this, this isn't right. This isn't good. This isn't how I imagined my life. But as we'll see in the book of Ruth, God's hand is in even our tragedy. So for Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, they're in a desperate situation because at that time in the culture, women were dependent upon either their fathers or their husbands or their brothers or their sons to provide for them. They've got each other, but honestly, like three widows is not that much to work with in the ancient Near Eastern culture. With, with no dependable long-term work for these women, they, they have a few different options. They can get married and try to build a new life. They can spend their life begging and living off the mercy of others. They could tragically turn to prostitution. Or they could wake up every day looking for temporary work, looking for a menial task, and scrape by as day laborers. And we find out in verse 6, that's what, that's what happens. Naomi gets a job working in the fields of Moab. And while she's working, she hears rumors. Even back then, there was rumors floating around at work, right? And she hears, hey, things have taken a turn for the good up in the land of Judah. 
The famine has ended and, and, and they've even been given bread. It's attributed to the God of, of Israel. Do you see that in verse 6? The Lord, that Hebrew, that translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. God had visited his people, we read there. That's the first time God's mentioned in this story. And even down in Moab, in a foreign land, they've heard about the Lord's provision. Because God had not forgotten his people. God is proving his faithfulness. Naomi can't see that yet. She just thinks, well, maybe I'll have a better chance of survival back home. And so in verse 7, we see that now that there's food and provision in her homeland, she's got no reason to stay in Moab. And so she sets out to return back to Judah. She packs up to go on a journey. And this is a turning point in the story, right? This is a good thing for her to go back home. And her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth... Begin the journey with her. But along the way, and it seems likely before they left the land of Moab, Naomi realizes, wait a minute, I can't do this to these poor young women. I can't drag them back with me. I I love them so much, I can't bring them into my tragedy. And so in verse 8, she says, look, just go back home. Go back to your mom's house. There's no reason for you to come with me. And I pray that Yahweh himself will deal just as kindly with you as you have dealt with me. Now, Naomi dearly loves these women. They're, they are her adopted daughters. They've been dedicated to her. She wants what's best for them. She knows she has no way to provide for them in Judah. She goes on to say in verse 9, I pray that the Lord will give you a new husband, that you can start a new life of peace and of rest. She wants what's best for them. But she knows that if they come with her, they're only going to find more turmoil and more struggle. And she knows that the best gift that she can give them is to release them of any sense of responsibility or obligation to her. And so she kisses them, she says goodbye, they have a big cry fest. But in verse 10, what happens? The daughters are like, no, we're not having it. They're sad, they're dedicated, they say, we can't leave you. We can't go back home, we're staying with you. We're going to return with you to your people. Look, they've been with her for 10 years. They are deeply attached. They want to stay with her and help provide for her. Anybody have that kind of relationship with with their mother-in-law? That kind of dedication, show of hands? Come on, nobody, it's Mother's Day. Nobody's going to give props to their mother-in-law. Okay, a couple of you, right? You break the stereotype. And if your mother-in-law is here, we, we know you sort of had to put your hand up. But, but they're dedicated to her. They love her. They're like, we can't leave you. But Naomi is insistent in verses 11. She goes on. She says, no, my daughters. She considers them her very daughters. She says, you can't stay with me. Return home. There's no reason for you to go. You'll have no life with me. She says, I've got no sons for you to marry. I'm too old to get remarried. She's likely past the age of child rearing. She says, even if I were to get married today and get pregnant tonight with sons, what are you going to wait around for 20 years, not marry anybody else and marry my two sons? Of course not. Makes no sense. I can't let you do it. And look at verse 13. She says, no, my daughters, the lot that I've been given, it's too hard. My lot is too bitter for me to share with you. God's hand, Naomi says, has turned against me and I can't bring you into my tragedy. And she's saying, in essence, you still have time. Get as far away from me as you can and save yourself. Go start a new life. Did you see the heart of Naomi there in verse 13? She has lost all hope for herself. But she's not lost hope for her daughters. She thinks she's damaged goods. She's Hopeless beyond repair, but she knows that there's still hope for them. See, she still believes in God's kindness for Orpah and Ruth. She doesn't believe in it for herself, but she believes in it for them. And she's afraid that if you stay with me, I'm just going to drag you down. And so she pushes them away. Isn't that interesting? In the midst of deep, deep despair, 
and tragedy. So often we push people away. You ever done that? Have you known people like that? Heard a man last week talk about his daughter's struggle with opioid addiction. Now for months and months at a time, they wouldn't see her. And, and, and when she would come home, it was this tension because they never knew what they were going to find. And his heart broke. And as much as they loved her, as much as they tried to help her, she would push them away. Because even though he had hope for his daughter, she had lost all hope and she didn't want their help. She didn't think she deserved their help. So often in, in tragedy, we lose hope for ourselves and we, we on some level, we love the people around us and we think that, that, that if we draw them close, they're, they're just going to get drugged down with us. And she's hopeless and desperate. Why? What do we see in verse 13? She's convinced that God's hand has turned against her. She convinces herself that there's no way that I'm still part of God's covenant people. There's no way he still loves me. Now listen, Naomi is correct that God's sovereign hand is in control of everything. Everything that she's faced. The scriptures say that God's sovereignty extends even over our tragedy, even into the deepest darkness that this world has to offer. God has not left. God's hand is at work. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 45 verse 7 says here, God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Proverbs 16, 4 says that the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God has a purpose. So Naomi was, was right in that God's hand is at work, but here's where she's wrong. Tragically wrong. That even when you are facing unspeakable tragedy that doesn't mean that god's hand is against you in fact for those that are covered by god's covenant love in christ those that that have his all-knowing all-powerful all-loving hand in their lives through faith in jesus he never leaves you see because god's good hand is always with us that's precisely the reason why we can have hope in the midst of tragedy and hardship Not that his hand is against us, but far from it, his hand is with us, even in the midst of the deepest darkness that we find in this world. God's hand is over our suffering, and that means he can still accomplish good. It doesn't mean it is good. It still hurts. Some of you are here this morning in deep pain. I'm not saying just have faith and get over it. I'm, I'm saying have faith that the Lord is still there. That brokenness and hardship and death and grief and pain in this life doesn't mean that God is against you. See, Naomi has failed to realize that God's hand of provision can still work for good through her tragedy. I remember talking with a woman some time ago in a hospital room, faced a lifetime of deep pain. She was grieving the loss of loved ones. Facing broken trust and struggling relationships and a failed health. And and like Ruth, she was full of despair. And her whole life, by her own words, she had pushed God away because she thought he couldn't be trusted. How could a God who has given me a life that I've been given be trusted? And I I said to her what I would say to you this morning. You you need to trust the Lord. Trust his goodness despite what you may see, despite what you may feel. Trust that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Even your pain, even your tragedy. Now Naomi hears this rumor that God has seen his people in Judah, that he's visited them. I love that word. And God's about to do the same thing for Naomi. She can't see it yet. 
She doesn't know that God has seen her, that His righteous hand is about to visit her. Can you know that? Do you know that this morning that God's hand is still at work? Just as He visited those people in Judah and and brought them out of famine, He has visited us as well. That's the promise of the cross. That's the promise of the coming of Jesus, is that we're not forgotten, that we're not left alone. That you're not hopeless. And the cross and the resurrection is not some far off hope for other people. It's for you this morning. For you that are caught in sin. For you that are caught in despair and hopelessness and hurt and burden and grief. Christ came to rescue us. He came. That is the hand of God for you. You say, what has He done? He sent Christ. He's died not just for the sin that you've done, for the, but for the sin done against you. For all of the fallenness and brokenness of this world. The gospel is not just that you're forgiven, but that you're fully redeemed and restored and rescued from the brokenness of this world. That through the resurrection, now you have new life. One day we will have new life eternal. Have faith in Him, friends. He has seen you and He has visited you in Christ. Now we read in in verse 14 that Orpah finally gives in. I don't know if she thinks that there's no use fighting or she realizes that Naomi's right, that her best chance for survival is to go back home. But she leaves. Ruth can't do it. She just can't bring herself to do it. She cannot leave. She can't turn away. She can't go back home to her mom. Why? Because Naomi is now her mother. Verse 14 says that Ruth clung to her. And we read those those famous words of, of devotion. And we see Ruth's devotion. Naomi tries, she tries one more time to send Ruth back. Says, look what, look what Orpah's done. That's the right choice. You should follow her back home. But Ruth replies with this famous statement. Look, look at Ruth 1, 16 and 17. I'm going to read it from the screen from the Christian Standard Bible. Ruth says, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. What's Ruth saying there? She's saying, I'm with you. I'm all in. I'm standing by your side no matter what. Only death, Naomi, is going to separate me from you. And she takes a vow of death in the name of Yahweh, submitting herself to him as God. But notice, Ruth is not just making a, a statement of personal devotion. She says, she says, your people will be my people. She's not only giving herself to Naomi, but to Naomi's people, to her family, to her tribe, to the nation of Israel. She's saying, in essence, I will become an Israelite. I'm going to renounce my citizenship. Your people will be my people. Beyond that, she's also devoting herself to Naomi's God. Your God will be my God. See, Naomi has tried to send her back to her own family, her own tradition, her own gods. But Ruth is saying, nope, I'm giving all that up. She's forsaking her past, her people, her gods, her family, her identity. This is full surrender on behalf of Ruth. She's going to stand with Naomi as her mother, stand with her tribe as her people, stand with Naomi's God as her God. Now, I can only assume that in the ten years that Ruth lived with Naomi. She had heard about this Yahweh God. This covenant God of Israel. I can only assume that Naomi has taught her. About the Lord's faithfulness and love. About his power. And his, his goodness. About his care and his mercy for orphans and widows. About his, his order. Which would have been radical in the ancient Near East. The type of provision. That were in the laws in place in the land of Israel. For orphans and widows. And the covenant love of Israel. 
And so in this deep moment of tragedy and hopelessness, while Naomi, in some sense, seems to have lost sight of the Lord, Ruth has not. And Ruth has faith that Naomi doesn't have. And God's hand is at work in Naomi's life through Ruth. And far from being turned against them, God's hand is turned toward them in their tragedy. And God's about to radically work in the midst of the circumstances, but he's already at work in Ruth's heart. Do you see that? God's hand is at work in Ruth's heart, and God has given Ruth to Naomi, and so that means God's at work in Naomi's life. And Ruth has confidence in that. She's willing to give up everything because of that. God has not turned against her. He's turned toward her as he changes Ruth's heart. God has visited his people in, in, in Judah and he's visited Naomi through Ruth. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be, be my God. Many of us know this statement. The statement's been read for generations at weddings. Of course, it describes the love between a, a, a mother-in-law and a daughter. But it's a beautiful statement of lifelong devotion. Genesis says that a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. That's the same same word that we saw in verse 14, that Ruth clung to Naomi. This unwavering devotion. Guys, listen. If the Lord has blessed you with a spouse, can you hear the heart of this this morning? God's heart for your husband or for your wife. We live in a culture where marriages begin out of convenience and end out of convenience. And if you don't know what the pandemic of the last two years has ripped destruction through countless marriages. Divorce in our culture is just seen as a personal right. Can, can, we, can we read this and pray to God? God, give us this kind of devotion. Give us this kind of, of devotion. Not just to stay married and to put up with my spouse. But to have the kind of peace, the kind of joy, the kind of resilience and dedication that Ruth has for Naomi. Now, how can she speak this way? How can, how can we begin to even pray this way? Ultimately, this statement of devotion is a reflection of God's covenant love. It's the reflection of the heart of God and His faithfulness for His people. God made a covenant with Abraham and with all of His descendants. And God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Do you see that same language of devotion? And in the New Testament, we know that that covenant has been fulfilled in Christ through the offspring of Adam. God has fully given himself to us in Christ. And that dedication is God's heart for you and I in Jesus. And he says, cling to me just as I have clung to you. Just as I have fully given myself to you. Given the life of my very son for you. And so he calls us to now say back in return to the Lord, to God. God, where you go, I'll go. Where you dwell, I will dwell. God, your people, the people that you love, I will love because you are my God. And so guys, listen, if you're here this morning and you call Jesus Lord, even if you're not there yet, but you're considering the claims of Christ and you're considering giving yourself to him, here's what it means. It means full surrender. It means you give up your past as Ruth did. You give up your people. You give up your identity. You give up all other gods, all for a new life in Christ. And some of you have had to give up much to follow Jesus. Some of you, even now, God's calling you, let go of your comfort. Let go of your values. Let go of your hopes and your dreams and your views. Let go of your time and your money. Let go of your idea of success. Leave everything behind in the world that you once considered for your gain. Let it all go. Full surrender. You say, well, that's kind of a lot to ask. Yep. That's what Jesus calls us to. 
Look at what Peter said in Mark chapter 10 as he wrestled with his exact same call. Peter says in Mark 10, See, we have left everything and followed you. Peter says, we've left it all. Look what Jesus says in reply. Truly I say to you, listen to this. Jesus says, truly I say to you, to you here today, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution, Jesus adds, and in the age to come, eternal life. Guys, whatever you've given up, Jesus says you're going to receive back a hundredfold, a hundredfold in the promises of Christ, in the family of the church, in the blessings of the Holy Spirit, even now and in the life to come, eternal life. So give it all to Him. Give it all to Him by His grace because He's given it all to you. Now look, in verse 18, Naomi realizes that Ruth is devoted toward her and toward Yahweh. And so it just says she says no more. She accepts it. She accepts that Ruth is coming with her. Naomi doesn't see it yet. Doesn't see that Ruth is the manifestation of God's hand. But let's look quickly at this final little scene here in chapter 19 as they return to Bethlehem. They return to Bethlehem together. The whole town is in an uproar because of them. No one can believe it. The women of the town are like, is this Naomi that left all those years ago? They probably thought she was dead or just gone forever. Naomi corrects them in verse 20. This is so sad. We see her despair that has now led to bitterness. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For God Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. See, in the Hebrew, Naomi means, means pleasant. Mara means bitter. She says, don't, 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 don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. And you see what she does there? She says, God Almighty has, has dealt me a bitter hand, given me a raw deal. And she goes on to grumble and, and express her heartache in verse 21. She says, I, I left here a full woman. I left here a decade ago, full of life, full of a husband and sons, but now I've come back completely empty. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant when God is obviously against me. He's afflicted me with, with much tragedy. Just call me bitter. And she has now sw- been swallowed by her own bitterness. The narrator closes out this first chapter helping us to see what Naomi can't see. Look at verse 22. It says, Naomi returned to God's promised land with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. And Ruth, remember, has just pledged her undying devotion. Not only that, but the narrator tells us in verse 22, it's the barley harvest. Now, I know that may not seem like a big deal, but the narrator is foreshadowing because he's about to, in in the next chapters, we're about to see that the barley harvest is going to be the means of their redemption. By the way, a cool little side note, in, in, in Israel, the barley harvest happen, happens early, like right around this time in spring. And, and so we're reading this right as it probably would have, the events would have unfolded. But do, but do you see Naomi? She says, I'm, I'm empty. I left full. Now I'm empty. What has what Naomi forgotten? What has she lost sight of? The woman standing right next to her. Can you imagine Ruth hearing Naomi cry out her bitterness and Ruth standing right there? Uh, hello, mom, 
Uh, I'm right here. Like, what am I, chopped liver? You're saying you've returned empty? You've got nothing? What about me? Like, I just gave a really good speech back there about my devotion to you. In fact, people are going to read that at weddings for generations to come. You, you say you have nothing? What about me? What about my devotion to you? What about my love and my commitment to you? But, but Naomi can't see it. She's caught up in her own bitterness. She can't see what God has clearly given her. Now, there is no question, and I don't want to make light of it. She has returned, yes, with deep, deep loss. Yes, with deep, deep struggle. And I'm not going to downplay Naomi's tragedy, and the Lord's not going to downplay your tragedy, but Naomi was not empty. She had Ruth. She just couldn't see it yet, couldn't see her. But isn't that what tragedy does? It guts us of any ability to see the remaining good gifts in our lives. It guts us of any ability to see God's hand. remember talking with a friend who had been in an awful, awful motorcycle accident. And his wife was riding on the back and she flew off and died instantly at the scene. And he was just overcome with with, with grief and remorse and tragedy and guilt. The Christian man, a godly man, he said, said, "I, I just wanted to kill myself. I had been swallowed by tragedy. I just wanted to kill myself. And after the police left the scene, he said, I was just going to go home and I was going to, I was going to end it. He said, but then he thought about his three children. And he realized that, that as empty and as desperate as he felt, he was not, he was not empty. And that was enough to give him a reason to live, to remind, for God to remind him that he was not empty, that God was still at work in his life. And that man today is, is remarried. He now, his faith is restored. He, he now not only has his three children, but countless grandchildren. God had given Ruth to Naomi. And that, and that meant that God was giving himself to Naomi through, through her. God is about to use Naomi, excuse me, God's about to use Ruth to redeem Naomi's whole life, her whole family line. And we get to read that in the weeks to come. Friends, Naomi was not empty that day, despite her deep tragedy, and neither are you. Whether you walked in here feeling full or feeling empty, overcome with joy or overcome with sorrow, your life is not empty. God has not forgotten you. Do not allow yourself to be overcome by despair, to give in to bitterness. And I call you this morning, I remind you this morning to look to God, to trust God. Look at what God has given you. Look at the good gifts, the good people. But look at God himself who has given himself to you. Listen, hear this. I I don't know the deep level of your personal pain or your family pain. The pain that's in this world. But I do know this. God has not forgotten you. And just as he visited the people of Israel, just as he's about to visit Naomi, he has visited you. In the midst of your pain and your hardship. And he is at work. His hand is not against you. His hand is at work. If your faith is in Christ, he will at work for his good purposes. So listen, the worship team is going to come back up. And I'm going to call us to to sing. You say, Tim, I don't feel like it. Okay. Don't don't fake it, but, but do it in faith. We're, we're going we're gonna to stand together and we're going we're gonna to praise God with this great hymn. Uh, proclaiming God's faithfulness. And you say, well, I don't believe he's faithful. It's too hard. I'm too empty. I'm too broken. I'm too bitter. Will you, will you stand with me? Stand with me now and let's sing of God's great faithfulness and believe that it's true.
Ask Him for the faith to believe that it's true. Whether your pain this morning is is small or if it's so overwhelming you feel suffocated. Come Holy Spirit and fill our hearts. Remind us of your redemptive grace. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness in Jesus who came for us, who died for us, who rose again. Great is your faithfulness by your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. Great is your faithfulness in the midst of the church despite all of her blemishes, despite all of the, the pain. Your faithfulness is great. And so we trust you. We trust you even for what we cannot see. Extend your hand. Extend your hand of grace and love to work in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our suffering. Bring healing and bring hope this morning. Come Holy Spirit.